My first desire was just to, I got to change my habits. I got to clean stuff up. I know I can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I also know that regardless of what I'm putting in place, I don't need to be captive to sin because God has already got my salvation. And I basically, whatever dregs of works-based theology, works-based salvation were left in me, just hit the road basically at that point. And that was kind of, that was what I needed out of the way to be like, God has me regardless because if I understand the gospel and it's it's deep in my soul, then I know that's something that the Lord has done in regenerating me. And so now all I want to do is just be thankful and change my habits, not to earn salvation, but just to it just be a, a better witness for Christ. This is Ordinary People with Extraordinary Lives, a series dedicated to the testimonies of believers and followers of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Arlenis Bakalu. Well, what a joy to be back another episode and also starting off a new season. This is season two, episode two, and with a very special guest, Clifton Stewart. Hello, hello. Good to see you all. Well, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Liz, for taking this time. Just very excited, like I said, for this new season. And I want to take this moment just to say thank you to everyone who uh, shared their testimony in our first season. It was such a wonderful time, just and such a blessing also to hear each and one of your stories and just how the Lord has worked in, and continues to work in a very unique way in all of your lives. And I just pray that He will continue guiding you and whether you're in ministry or pursuing ministry, that he will be the one leading the way for you. And before we begin this episode, I have asked Clifton to think about a passage that impacted his life in the time of his conversion. And uh, I would love to hear that verse. There's a popular verse that a lot of people uh, have known and quoted for um, many, many, many years since I've been uh, involved in church ministry. But I, the first time I heard it, it was impactful specifically because I just randomly found it in the Bible and, and saw it in context and saw uh, it doesn't seem like it should be spoken where it is, which is Lamentations chapter 3. Um, and so I'll read the first couple of verses, and then when it gets to the part everyone knows contextually, it, it just uh, it speaks volumes. But uh, Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse verse 16. Uh, It says, He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. So I love that. That's Lamentations chapter 3, verses 16, all the way up until... 26. To begin, I would love to hear um, just about your life growing up, your family, uh, was a believing home, um, and maybe all the way until you're, when you're first introduced to, to the gospel. Sure. Yeah. So it was, it was a little while, I think, before I had an introduction to the gospel. And I think that's 
all the trickiest stuff in my life happened after I had an introduction to the gospel just to um, to try and basically fight for a long time to to figure out where that fit in my life and if I would actually accept it. But basics, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, um, just outside of Vancouver, Canada in a city called Coquitlam. My mother and my father had five kids. I'm the second. I have an older sister, a younger brother, and two younger sisters. Um, we all grew up together. We're almost exactly a year and a half apart, so very, very close in age. So we just grew up really enjoying having fun together and playing around together. And most of us pretty much all got along um, pretty good for for most of our, our lives. Um, we also did grow up in the church. Um, we specifically grew up in the Pentecostal church. My um, grandfather on my mother's side was a Pentecostal minister for years all throughout, uh, especially the Midwestern kind of equivalent of Canada and then up into the West Coast, eventually settling around Vancouver Island and then now in Abbotsford, which is equal distance away from Vancouver, just more south. Whether it was that influence or just the fact that we knew a lot of uh, other believers that were in the Pentecostal church, that's kind of where we ended up. And I have very good memories of, of the Pentecostal church growing up. It was a real community. I heard lots of things. Uh, we were basically, our parents got us to go to Sunday school when we grew up. I think I knew every single book of the Bible in order by age five or age six. Uh, very, very early on, you know, just singing songs to to know their order and and uh, all sorts of Bible verses are stuck in my head. John fourteen two, uh, John three sixteen fourteen six, Romans three uh, twenty four. I think it is just random verses are just stuck in my head from songs we sang when I was just very very young in the church. And I think that's probably there's there's some point there uh, where I think I started uh, warming up to Christianity even before I heard the gospel. My mom has a funny story of just. Uh, there was like a an altar call kind of thing. And most of the people who went up were much older. Um, and I kind of like slinked out of my seat. My mom thought I was going to bail, um, but I actually went up and like jumped into the altar thing and was like, I don't know if I was like laying hands on people to pray or if I kind of just like got in there, but I just like really liked it and was just like a fan of like being in that atmosphere. So I had, I had a good warmth to, I guess, the institution or, or our particular church, whatever it was. Our closest friends we liked hanging out with were, were at that church. And then when we started going to um, basically a Pentecostal camp uh, that my grandfather had connections to, uh, that's where I started to uh, warm up to it as uh, it actually kind of came in tandem with some social awareness. We basically just started knowing. Uh, this is the first time in my life I started knowing uh, large groups of people at the same time. We'd have a camp of anywhere between 200 to 300 when I was a kid. And we knew pretty much everyone and everyone knew us. And so with that kind of social collective, um, that all kind of came around these services that we would have at the camp um, after like many, many hours of like violently playing sports. <laughs> it's the only way I can describe it. Um, and But then we'd all kind of worship together. And I, I remember a lot of those sermons, hearing the gospel, I think a number of times, um, even especially just through counselors. I think, yeah, that's where I started opening up um, to the idea of basically the theology of the gospel um, at a very, very rudimentary level. And it was about, I think by the time I was about 16 is when I got baptized there at that camp and they, they had a, a bay um, off the ocean um, that I got baptized there. I think I was about 16, yeah. yeah. So for me, that actual section of the gospel, which is basically both the emotion and the theology hitting at the same time, that actually happened for me much later. I've, I've always um, 
considered and reconsidered and re-reconsidered um, how much of faith I understood well when I got baptized at 16. Um, and the idea for me was just wanting to be faithful in my baptism, being baptized when I knew the Lord. And so that became uh, something I thought about a lot. And the reason was just because I had so much other opinions and I mean, even self-aggrandizement that was wrapped up with my understanding of the gospel at 16. Some of it was from teaching. Some of it was because of my own ideas of kind of what I made out God to be. Basically, after I got baptized, I went through um, just a number of, of uh, much bigger uh, personal struggles. It wasn't until I was about 20, which was halfway through college, so another four years later when I was about 21 years old, that the gospel finally made made sense in a, in a really, really deep sense to me. So I think for me, probably the, the best way I could summarize that whole five-year weird split between having a, a, a comprehensive understanding of the gospel and then a, uh, either a full acceptance of the gospel or a, real, a realization of how the gospel affects me, in summary would be the fact that I brought so much self-strength and self-responsibility into spiritual warfare. Um, and so the, basically, as soon as I started getting hit with basically the desire to sin, I couldn't fight. I wasn't fighting on spiritual warfare grounds. I was fighting with basically my own strength and my own credibility to try and tackle those things. And of course, that was unsuccessful completely. Uh, so for me, basically, the big there's a number of big changes in my life uh, that affected me very hard. Probably the biggest one was right after I got baptized at that camp, I switched schools. I went from uh, a high school I'd already spent grade 9 and 10 at. And by the fact I say grade 9 and grade 10 instead of 7th grade and 8th grade, you know I'm Canadian and not American. But when I switched high schools in uh, grade 11, uh, 10 or grade 11 and 12, basically I, I jumped into a school and I was inv invited into this huge community of kids. And that was kind of where I went from basically um, just kind of hanging out in the library or knowing a couple of friends. Uh, I did sports as well on the side with a different community, but I jumped from an atmosphere of um, just a much smaller group of people into a larger group of people. And so I just did everything they did. And most of that was partying. So I just started uh, getting involved in a lot of uh, drinking and uh, excess. And I had never really prepared for, you know, when I had heard stories about what partying is like or alcohol is like, or, or promiscuity is like. I had always pictured, and even the church in a couple of different ways, not my church, but just Christians at large, um, kind of assumed that there are these these people who were just like always mean and, and ruthless and, and sin would just be obvious, but it wasn't to me at grade 11. I just, all of these people who are kind of in, including me and, and loving me in this way um, and getting me into this atmosphere, like I also desired to be there because it, it gave me credibility. It gave me what I thought were just these really, really deep friendships. And then at the same time, um, these people really did care for me and they were really kind to me. And I, I, I kept thinking, oh, if I'm going into a bad atmosphere, the people would be meaner or I'd be more pressured, but I wasn't. I was taken by the hand and kind of brought into the stuff. And so for two years, I just built up, um, I spent kind of one year kind of learning the social credibility that you get from, from that kind of lifestyle. And then I spent my grade 12 year just really enjoying that lifestyle just a lot. It also was just hard for me uh, personally because I had been introduced to uh, just a ton of really awful secret sin when I was in probably 11 or 12. And that had actually come from someone else who was a Christian um, as well. And so it kind of just tangled up my mind 
entangled up my idea of sexuality and uh, promiscuity and all of this kind of stuff that I kind of secretly brought into this whole world that people were now saying I could I could a lot, let a lot of that out onto the surface. I didn't have to hide it. I didn't have to be ashamed of it. And that kind of just, that messed with my brain and just normalized a lot of things that should not be normalized. So when it wasn't for another kind of two years after that, because I, I went away to college and just brought all that with me and basically just came right back into a community. I had a, a brief period of isolation for about five or six months. But then by the time I, I met people again, I just jumped right back into that world and just again, enjoyed it. And it was three or four times harder um, in terms of intensity, because you're in college now, it's not high school. Um, there's a lot of stuff I was getting introduced to. Um, the Lord was very merciful to just protect me from a lot of uh, different things. Um, so I, I wasn't necessarily pulled into drug culture too hard. Actually, right before the gospel made sense to me, I had just begun that step. I had just taken that step into that realm to see if that would satisfy and was fortunately kind of pulled out before I was dragged into it. But alcohol had a, a pretty good grip on me for a while. And even like friends of mine probably wouldn't say that. And and they'd be right in terms of it wasn't um, like this on the surface thing. I wasn't, you know, carrying around a flask with me everywhere. But when I, I just craved it a lot and I craved the environment a lot. And I was kind of always looking for, you know, I would usually have make sure every Friday, Saturday night I had three or four parties I could go to. So I always seemed busy with this kind of lifestyle. So people knew that I was invested in it and I spent time trying to do that. Um, so that was the biggest reason that I didn't get the gospel so quick is because I had the information, but I desired what sin gave me more. Um, and sin, the consequence of that was um, a lot of on the surface, just a lot of credibility and a lot of likability and love from people. Um, but yeah, underneath I was an absolute mess. I just kind of needed a little bit of guidance to to be to figure out how I could put myself together again. When I went to college, I was also kind of involved in a small local church that was there. That was they they kind of were looking for pastors multiple times, um, but it was just because it was a small community. They were really faithful and they really loved me. Um, but I wasn't necessarily entangled in a lot of those members' lives, um, and so like no one really knew what I was doing. I also had a group of uh, friends, really wonderful. Uh, friends at our um, our Christian group that was on campus. Um, and then the thing that was difficult for me was um, every once in a while, I'd feel really bad about um, kind of the lifestyle I was in. And I would either A, feel very nervous talking to people about it, or B, I would talk about it and it, it would be uh, promoted. It would not be expunged or it would not be basically said it was wrong. And so I didn't really have anyone holding me back. Um, and that's not on them. That's on me. You know, it's not their job to you know, have to rein me in. Um, I mean, every every single one of us as believers has an accountability to each other to help each other. But the basically, I just didn't have any of those extra steps that may have kind of brought me back a little bit sooner. And so I just kept going kind of headlong into this stuff, especially on the weekends, and then kind of just hide a ton of stuff uh, through the weeks. By the time I understood the gospel, when that when that kind of clicked after. A number of weeks. I remember going back and and talking to some people, and uh, yeah, I had some close friends who are who are part of that. Who we started uh, rubbing up against each other's shoulders a lot more, and there was a lot more uh, friction in our relationship, um, which was hard. I would definitely say some of that was on me. I fell in basically hard into what's called a cage stage. <laughs> um, I was cage stage all, all the way. Just basically the idea that. Basically, this truth is just so new and so radically helpful 
that you kind of just force it on everyone you meet. And so I did that for like a full year. I had like a year of doing that. And then I had, that was my third year of school. And then my fourth year of school was trying to basically go back and, tr and try and clean up a lot of the messes that I made. But I remember just that, that kind of tension of trying to figure out uh, how does my theology practically apply? I had of, uh, and I had a number of sins I had to deal with. Some of them were immediately dealt with, and then some took another couple years, two or three years to to deal with because they were just so ingrained in my habits and my lifestyle. But at the same time, I was I was trying to figure out what to do. I didn't have a pastor. Um, I had Christian friends, but we all had just different ideas of what Christianity was like. So all I did was just read the Bible. I I didn't really I listened to a lot of sermons and podcasts and stuff too, I suppose. But the main thing was just the word and trying to figure out the consistency there. So it definitely changed our relationships. We were, I think we were all pretty close uh, up until I left college and, and came out uh, to LA. But yeah, that friction was very hard to try and figure out how to, how to go forward as a Christian when I was not involved in the local church. All of those desires were based upon the things that I was learning in the word. So I didn't, I didn't necessarily, you know, the first, the first desire I didn't have was like, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a pastor. The first desire was just, um, I want to love God and, and I want to do it through my, through my actions because he's already settled everything else for me. So the thing that really changed me was I, I had moved out of my aunt and uncle's uh, house. Most of that was just because I wanted to learn how to be responsible on my own. But part of it, which was just kind of uh, deep underlying love to, um, basically they were kind of the last buttress of holding me back from sin because they were just really wonderfully God-fearing Christians. And so I was just worried that I would kind of get a, a judgment uh, even though I kind of knew I deserved it. So if I had my own space and my own house, I wouldn't, first of all, I wouldn't make them feel bad because they'd feel like it was on them because they're just very loving uh, family. Um, but then I also just didn't want to be faced with my sin. But when I moved out, they had um, gotten a call um, from my dad from a series that they knew and said, hey, would you want to do this with Clifton, which is another story that I can, I can share later too. But they said they would. Um, and so they invited me to dinner. And they said, you want to have dinner once a week? And I said, yeah, for sure. And I was a college kid. I was really hungry all the time. Um, and like, you know, my eating habits were terrible when I first moved out. So I was like, of course. And then they said, do you want, to, when we had dinner, they said, do you want to do this DVD series together when we meet? And I said, sure. So we, we did it. Um, and of course, I was still kind of median Christian level. I would have called myself a Christian. The idea of just doing a Bible study, like 20 minutes or 40 minutes or stuff was fine. I, I wouldn't say I just like was super pumped, but I was fine to, you know, kind of have another intellectual tidbit to talk to some other, you know, intellectual college kid about. And that series was called The Doctrines of Grace in John by Steve Lawson. And uh, right away, I hated it. I hated it a ton. I was so mad. Uh, I didn't like his accent. I didn't like I didn't like the fact he was wearing a tie, um, all this superficial stuff, all the superficiality of it. I hated. Then he started teaching, and it and it really started bugging my heart a lot. You know, he would talk about total depravity, and I was thinking, oh, you're way too hard on people. We're not that bad. Mm -hmm. um, and he started talking about limited atonement, which is like God is just the popular kid picking other popular kids. Like all this stuff that bugged me. And but eventually, it got to the end of that series. That was the preservation of the saints. And he started explaining uh, this concept that was bugging me. And whoever's doing the graphics card, basically, you know, someone after they filmed and stuff would put up the uh, Bible verses he was quoting from in the Gospel of John. And they didn't put one up for some reason, like he quoted scripture. And it, 
I was really offended by it. But then when he quoted it again, the scripture came up and in, I don't even remember the passage. It was in John. And I realized, oh man, I, I just got offended from scripture, not him. And so I went home and was just so, it kind of shattered my whole understanding of like, because I knew, I knew somewhere about inerrancy. I had this basic understanding of inerrancy from growing up in the church and it just started bugging me. And so I started going through this the big scope of his teaching, which was sovereignty. And so I started going through the Bible. I started in Genesis. It was probably uh, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. And I just started reading and reading and reading. And I read all through the night and I barely slept. Uh, and I fell asleep at like 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. And I was somewhere in Ezekiel. Um, I just read a massive amount. And the reason I kept reading is because sovereignty was everywhere. It was on every single page, it felt like. And I could see and make sense of this very clear history that the Bible is working through. I skipped through lots of parts through there. I didn't read every single word on every single page. Sometimes I'd skip. I think somewhere early in Judges, I like skipped the whole book because I was like, that's too violent. Um, All sorts of stuff like that. But eventually when I fell asleep, when I woke up, I was like completely repentant. I I knew that I had just totally transgressed on the idea that just God owns my salvation. He like he wrought it, he regenerated, and he, you know, and I was because we had been going through Ephesians one kind of in that time during the Bible study, I knew that he he had adopted me by his own gracious will, um, in electing me to salvation rather than anything I'd ever done. All of a sudden I was just totally different. So I remember going back, talking to some friends, being like, We gotta change everything, <laughs> like everything's wrong. And it wasn't, like there was all sorts of things, but yeah, it it, it just totally lit a fire under me to start doing that. So my first desire was just to, uh, I got to change my habits. I got to clean stuff up. I know I can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I also know that regardless of what I'm putting in place, I don't need to be captive to sin because God has already got my salvation. And I basically, whatever dregs of works-based theology, works-based salvation were left in me, just hit the road basically at that point. And that was kind of, that was what I needed out of the way to be like, you know, uh, God has me regardless, because if I understand the gospel and it's it's deep in my soul, then I know that's something that the Lord has done in regenerating me. And so now all I want to do is just be thankful and change my habits, not to earn salvation, but just to it just be a, a better witness for Christ. And a lot changed for me. Like, you know, a lot of uh, secret sin and desires and stuff were just kind of replaced by by a love for Christ and, and wanting to be with him. So they, they were all my, all my first desires upon understanding the gospel were just very, very basic. I'm just trying to, to clean up stuff, um, not for appearances sake, but just so I could love Christ more. So basically I spent two years after that, that period of either, either becoming a believer for the first time, which it, it certainly could have been, or just kind of under understanding, um, my responsibility as a Christian for the first time, whichever one it was. Yeah, I spent two years just thinking through what I wanted to do with my life. And a lot of my friends around me were, um, they were very practical. I had uh, one close friend who was just, uh, she was very driven and practical, always kind of had this um, this plan of, of what she kind of wanted to do. Uh, and that was helpful for me to start thinking through the same thing. And so because of that, I just started investigating multiple things. And up until this point, I'd always wanted to be an English teacher or history teacher. I just love the idea of teaching. Um, but for the first time, I was thinking a lot less about teaching and a lot more about just just serving somewhere faithfully. 
And so that was kind of the first time I started thinking about being a pastor. And I still didn't have this idea of preaching as this lofty, you know, climactic center ground of the church. I didn't have any of that yet. So I wasn't thinking about, oh, I'm just going to teach in the church. I was rather thinking about, you know, I'll do the dude, I'll be the dude who stacks chairs and I'll be the dude who, um, you know, probably helps with discipleship and training, but I'll start organizing stuff. And I'm not an admin guy at all, but I, I just felt like I wanted to just immediately spend time doing that. Um, I wasn't even thinking, I was thinking kind of more vocationally, but I knew that that was so important, especially where I was in Canada, where it was just hard for me to find a lot of Christian examples. I just wanted to get trained well and trained deeply. So the only name I knew was Lawson. And so Lawson just uh, kind of led me to the master's seminary, which is in LA, which is why I came here. Uh, and I still remember talking to the admin guys who basically took the applications for people at master's seminary. Uh, and a couple of them will still tell you I'm probably the most Pentecostal person they've ever accepted at the master's seminary, which is probably not true. There's probably lots, lots of people like me, I think, who came from uh, just similar ideas. But they were tipped off with an essay that I wrote for them that said um, the conclusion was like, I really feel like master's seminary is right for me. And they'd never heard that. They'd always had all these examples instead of, and then when they asked me, I'm like, yeah, I just feel it. It's a spirit. I'm just going to go here. <laughs> um, and that was just really strange <laughs> to hear, of course, because I had no plan, no uh, action or anything. So they were the first people to walk me through the qualifications, you know, uh, Titus 2, 1 Timothy 3. Like, you know, a pastor isn't just what you want to do it. You have to be called by God to do it. And then they also introduced me to James 3, 1. You know, those who are teachers will be judged and held to higher accountability. And that wrecked me for a whole month. Um, I would cut, talk to them. I had to write extra papers for them. I had to just write more stuff. So they kind of had an idea that I would at least be teachable. That's all they wanted to know rather than come in and have a big fuss because, you know, I can only explain so much of where I'm from over the phone and such and my plans. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for, for three, for like a whole month, I was just every morning, every night, James three, one was stuck in my head and just tormenting me, absolutely tormenting me until finally one day I kind of realized, you know, I can't imagine like it's, it's gotten to the point where as worried about teaching as I was because they were this was the first opportunity of understanding like how important preaching is at the same time I, I was thinking I can't even imagine doing anything else it was just so stuck in my head and it was so it was very much not a stubborn thing because I kept looking for other things to do I kept looking like what would it take to do teaching again to be a professor and I was working at a plastic factory in the summers and stuff and I was like, you know, I could be a trades guy. I don't care. Um, you know, I'm definitely not built for trades. I'd, I'd never demonstrate anything like that before. But I was comfortable thinking about that. But I only thought of those things as a result of I, ha I would have to find a local church first and be taught somewhere there and then go into the field. Everything kept coming back to, um, like, we need people here in Canada. We need ministers desperately. And so... I had had a couple really good examples. We, you know, during that time when I came back, me and my father started talking about theology again, uh, just like totally revamped. We started going to Saturday evening sermons with a, a radio minister named uh, John Newfeld, who was just an amazing help for me during those two years of learning theology. Um, but I needed a church. I needed a local church. And so with, with a lot of my heart set on being a pastor and how that was slowly being defined for me, I decided, you know, I'll just, I'm going to go all in on this. Um, you know, I trust that, you know, I'd only believed God is sovereign for two years. So I'm like, 
God's going to handle me. I'm good. I also found out like that, you know, that the the cost wouldn't be crazy, which was so helpful for me. You know, everyone on the phone had given me indication that they were so willing to help. So yeah, I just went all in. Uh, I actually did a three month uh, internship and in the summer at a church in Canada where I grew up before I went back. And uh, yeah, then I went right to LA, met three guys in a really sketchy part of town in in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, And we were kind of like, like slumming it for like a whole year. And I was just, I was very happy. I spent one or two months very nervous. Like, what have I got myself into? Uh, I didn't even know there weren't women there. I, I I called my mom one day. I said, mom, there's no women here. It's just guys. She's like, well, yeah. Like, <laughs> And so like everything was new to me. Everything was new to me. And after I got kind of past the initial shock and the overwhelmingness of like, you know, every day they were re re-putting down how important it is to just be faithful and be pure and be um, dedicated and serving. But all of it was was making me twice as excited about it. So I'd be nervous and then that would kind of dissipate to like, yeah, bring it on. Let's do it. I just got in the headspace of whatever opportunities to serve come up that will basically give me the opportunity to be the most faithful over a long period of time. So a ministry that doesn't just need someone now, they need someone for all four years. I'll do it. And so I met uh, Mark Zikiewicz like really early on from part of foundation and someone at the church had worried me like, you know, you're not in seminary if you don't serve at the church. Um, you know, it's basically like, you know, the culmination of your seminary degree is serving in the local church here at Grace Church. And so I came to Mark, I'm like, I'm doing it wrong. I'm not serving. He's like, (laughs) calm down. Um, he's like, serve for a year and we'll see what happens. Like just be around for a year. So that, that was my first ministry. Get to know everyone here and every, you know, just get as many prayer requests as you can and just pray for people. And then just be as available as you possibly can to meet people and just talk with them over things. And, you know, just don't talk more than you know. Like I wasn't going around trying to counsel people, but just listen to people and then basically tell them, I don't know what to do, but I've been reading this in the Bible. It's really encouraging. And that's what I did for like a whole year. That was like just my first ministry. And then after that, it got into more and more opportunities to to serve um, at uh, different levels that demanded more from me but would just reap so much more joy um, in in knowing, you know, I was sl- slowly learning how to be qualified. But yeah, that's kind of the, the change from college to basically into seminary. I do want to say congratulations because you graduated. Thank you. Yes, year. I just did in May. Yeah. Yes. Slash August because that's when we actually walked. Yes. <laughs> I was in seminary for four years. Four years. Yeah. Finally graduated and also got engaged. I sure did. <laughs> Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, I had been looking for a a church. Um, Basically, me and Ashley were determining if we were going to go back to Canada right away or we were going to wait a little while and serve in a local church uh, in an area we knew that had resources for us to basically be trained outside the classroom and into the environment. And so um, I had found two churches. I had talked to, uh, in Shepherd's Conference, I had been introduced to a church online who was just looking for a youth pastor and talked with them. Very next day, out of nowhere, uh, I had gotten a text about another pastor who was looking for some stuff and talked to him the same day. Um, and so I had actually kind of gone and and put particular effort into the second person. Um, and so we basically, I was candidating there for about three months. But at the same time, this other church that I had met with was just texting me encouragement and just texting me, you know, 
you know, we're not trying to like steal you away from this other church. We're, we're just trying to just want to encourage you that, you know, we appreciate you and, and hope everything is going okay. Um, and had kind of just never given up on that process, which was really encouraging. And that first thing, obviously things didn't end up working out with candidating. There's uh, a number of us in the running for such, and they felt that there's another gentleman who was uh, another master seminary grad, which is great. I found out who it was after um, they got him and he's an excellent guy. Um, and so I was kind of left there. Um, but I, I immediately went back with this other church because they had just been so encouraging through this whole process. And that's all I was looking for. I was looking for a church that I knew would be faithful to the word. Um, the biggest thing was that they had a real need, a real need that I could actually fulfill, uh, a church that would, would demonstrate uh, faithfulness in some way. Um, and for me, that third one was easily met in the fact that they were just um, just constantly keeping tabs on me and praying for me and stuff. And I was going through a lot of visa stuff at the same time, just being a Canadian citizen, transferring from a student to um, a worker, which was a complicated and long process. They were they were just so kind to me during that whole process. So I immediately started talking with them and um, they had kind of expected, oh, we'll talk for another two months. And I was like, no, I'm in. Like, I'm in now. We're good. <laughs> so I just jumped right in with them. Um, and so they were in Orange County, so they weren't actually very far. Basically, I was I still hadn't had a house yet, so I was just like waiting in a hotel for a couple of weeks, which was um, which was super great. It was kind of like this weird hermiting, living in a cave, uh, and just like meditating on like this weird transitionary stage where my foot is just leaving one life and and jumping into this other uh, place. And so, yeah. And then after that, the, the Lord just provided through the church, provided a home. All my visa stuff had just got worked out at that point and finalized. Um, and I just, uh, basically stepped into ministry. So I'm the youth pastor now at a church in Fullerton, California called, uh, Cornerstone Bible Church. The plan is to be there for the foreseeable future and, and working with the youth. The goal eventually I've, I've, uh, I've plans to stay, uh, with Ashley as we go through the first number of years of our marriage and just get to just get to know each other really. Um, because obviously we've been dating for, uh, two and a half years. So we know each other, uh, obviously well already, but there's just that whole new game. Um, you know, when you, when you get married, of course, uh, as other people have told me, and I do not know yet, but, uh, we're going to, we're going to stick that out with this church who has just been very faithful to us. And, um, the plan is to just be here for for a number of years still. We just kind of wait, um, and it'll be a number of years before we start, you know, really actually looking at stuff. And right now we're just uh, seeing where where the the Holy Spirit is directing our hearts to to serve in the future, but um, just waiting for that potential opportunity in the future. At the beginning of this episode, um, Clifton read a passage from Lamentations, and it was one of the, those passages that were very impactful in his conversion um and i would love to hear how did the lord use this specific passage in your own life yeah so that's yeah that's the last piece of my of my testimony that i hadn't mentioned which was after after i had received basically the the very very basic gospel i had gone through a big period of of inward kind of turmoil and didn't know how to fix it until i i understood the true gospel and the depth of it but then at that point, I had just gotten into the period of actual suffering. And so what had happened for me is I was just reading massive pieces of my Bible. And I found out that the reason my aunt and uncle were thinking about this DVD series was because uh, my father had actually communicated with them. And the reason was because 
um, back home, which I wouldn't actually know for a couple more months, uh, was my dad had just gotten cancer. Uh, so he had gotten non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's a form of cancer that uh, attaches to your lymph nodes. So basically it could go anywhere. So he had gone from just being uh, just a super faithful dad of working just literally hundreds of hours uh, in a week, just always on the go. I never remember him being absent. He was just always there, but he just worked so incredibly hard. And yeah, he, he kind of just got this cancer diagnosis out of nowhere. And uh, in, in leading up to chemotherapy, he had to go home. And so he went from having hours and hours and hours working to sitting at home and didn't know like what to do with that time. Very early on when he went home, he kind of just, uh, I don't know if it was absentmindedly or just randomly started reading his Bible. And the first the first thing, it just hit him immediately when he started reading the word. It's thinking, oh man, my, my kids don't know theology, like deep theology. And so all of the hours he used to spend working, he threw into theology and just studying the word, like unbelievably hard. So he would do 10, 11, 12 hours a day um, going through. He knew MacArthur. I didn't know MacArthur. I'd never heard of MacArthur, but he started going through a lot of uh, sermons, like, you know, covering the whole you know, gospel of John or something, I think it, or uh, I think it was Matthew or Mark, like John had taken two or three years to go through it. My, my dad covered it in like four months or something insane. Just like, just going through like every sermon and and writing down huge notes and stuff and things, reading everything. Um, And then he had actually introduced the the same DVD series to uh, three of my, my brother and and two of my, or my one brother and two sisters who were back home. Um, who was also affecting them. Well, I was going through this stuff too. So when I had actually found out that my dad uh, had cancer, my dad had kind of actually been in that for a month and a half, two months probably. Um, and I just kind of never heard. Our family's very close, but I just I just was behind the punch kind of thing. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they probably didn't want me to know right away. It could have been that too. Uh, you know, just me and my sensitivities, I suppose, at that time, too. Me and my dad just started talking about theology all the time. And when that was happening, uh, we were both trying to understand um, how it could be that basically you could be in such a, a, a tricky and, and painful time and still hold on to God. And so I had heard a, a random pin drop in a sermon of like, oh, yeah, Lamentations is about that. And so I Lamentations isn't very long. So I read Lamentations and saw that verse three in the middle and how, you know, it's one of the most violent descriptions of suffering in the whole Bible. Um, You know, your teeth being broken up on the road, you know, like as if someone fell off a motorcycle, like um, your bowels moving around within you, like just these terribly awful descriptions. And then he can still flip around and say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And that was huge for me. That was one of the first parts of scripture I had memorized after growing up in the church, like just sitting down by myself, repeating it in the mirror all the time, you know, saying it to myself as I was going into my classes, all that kind of stuff. And so just helped me so much during that period where we actually kind of got to skip over the morning phase where I had probably like a uh, just a, a week or two weeks or something of like, oh no, life is all messed up. Um, you know, if my, if my dad dies to even talking about my dad of like, oh, we'll be, we'll be okay. Like the Lord had, the Lord has all this. Fortunately, we didn't expect it, but my dad's actually in recession, which is great. He's still around. Uh, and, and we, we talk frequently and I'm very thankful for that, of course, but it was such a good thing to know the, the tenacity of the word to just get us through that period that if 
anything did happen or if anything does happen, you know, the Lord totally has that in his hands. It didn't, it didn't go over his head. He didn't, it didn't catch him off guard. Um, and just know that he's still very much sovereign over anything and, and cares for his people. The reason we need Christ and, and everyone does need Christ because one day we're all going to be asked by Christ, why should, why should you be here in heaven? And the reason we need Christ is because ever since the fall in Genesis chapter three, every single one of us um, has desired, uh, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, to be God rather than to worship God. Um, and there's a penalty for that. And there must be a penalty for that if God is a good judge. He will not allow thieves, murderers, adulterers um, to um, operate in his world through his creative work, um, both in, in everything that we are and designed in everything in this world, and allow us to simply um, take all those things and not use them to glorify Christ, which is how we are all designed and what we are accountable for. And the option that God has before him is um, he could just allow us all to die uh, and be eternally punished. Um, as high as the height of God's glory is, is also as high as our penalty must be um, judged upon and punished. Um, and because God is infinitely holy, his holiness never ends. Transgressing that authority in even one way demands an eternal punishment. Uh, it must last as long as the heights of God's holiness. Um, and the option God has before him is to simply let that happen. Just allow us to um, to die and to suffer uh, for eternity because it says the wages of sin is death. But fortunately, the other side of that coin is that the free gift of God is eternal life. And what this is, is the two requirements that we have to be reunited in relationship with God is to be perfect. Matthew uh, 5, 48 says, you must be perfect. It's, it's a literal concept that we must follow. We must be perfect as God is perfect. So Christ lived a perfect life and even upon his death had never sinned once and fully pleased the Father in absolutely everything um, and attributes that to us as a free gift that we'd be perfect before the Father. But we also must be forgiven for everything we have done. We must be punished. That is why Christ died on the cross. He took that sin. Um, it's called the great exchange that he has taken our sin punished it and absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved on the cross and gave us eternal life through his perfect righteousness, having all of our sins uh, punished now. And so because of that, uh, we may now live knowing um, that if we understand that gospel and accept that gospel, then it was in fact done for us, for every single one of us personally. So because of that, we can live a life knowing now that we, um, the demand on our lives is not to be perfect. It is not to be um, consistently good and never sin because Christ has already done that for us. And therefore we can live now knowing um, that our lives are for the first time uh, available to uh, be lived in full conformity to God's word, to desire him above all things, um, to enjoy the benefits that he has given us in this life and look forward to no matter how much suffering we have in this life, no, uh, no matter how much pain is there, that God has already secured a place for us in heaven, John 14, 2, that he's prepared a room for us already. Uh, and we can walk into that reality knowing he will never let our feet stumble so much that we would uh, fall away from that plan for us because it is not assured by us, it's assured by him. And so now we we live knowing that Christ has secured everything for us. And uh, one day we will see him and, and worship with him and enjoy his, his uh, relationship face-to-face -face forever. Father, thank you so much for the reality that uh, all of us share who know you personally, 
uh, that you are a good God and a steadfast uh, Father to us who sent your Son Christ to die for us and has given us uh, your seal of preservation through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, that we would be able to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us um, because we are your workmanship. Thank you so much for the strength that you have given us and the regenerative power of your spirit on our lives that we would recognize um, how good it is to be a Christian, how good it is to glorify you. Um, Not that life is not hard, not that life is uh, going to be lived perfectly, but the knowledge that we can trust you and we can um, believe that you have all good things in store for us and that everything that we are going through, Lord, is reaping in us a heart that would desire to know you more um, until we one day um, see the reality of, of your son's death for us, the, the consequences of our sin, everything washed away, and that we may purely look at you with new uh, eyes after you have resurrected our bodies, Lord, that we would be able to just um, enjoy the benefits of eternal life with you. Um, please bless this time that you've given us. Um, we pray for anyone who's uh, heard this, that they would understand um, not that uh, us as human beings uh, can be extraordinary in any sense, but um, through your power and through your transformation through the Holy Spirit, we may be able to serve you and enjoy life with you uh, and know that the best of this life is nothing in consequence to the uh, eternal gift of salvation that you've provided for us and the eternal relationship that we uh, eagerly wait to walk into. Thank you so much for this time, Lord. Please let it be a blessing to you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. On the next episode of Ordinary People with Extraordinary Lives. You know, at the very start of it, when you when you start the tale, right, when you open the book, it it almost looks like a really good, great scenario. My father was a pastor. He married the daughter of a church leader. My dad had been sent to Washington State, be a youth pastor there, and to be involved in church there. It was there that all the crazy stuff, I guess, began. 